Let us pray. Heavenly Father, what a joy it is to be here this morning and sing of our Redeemer. It brings to mind that we are redeemed from the penalty of sin and the grace goes on even every day, every moment. Now we have a chance to express our gratitude in giving as unto the King of kings and Lord of lords, even Jesus Christ our Savior. Amen. Several announcements this morning. First of all, Helen Lacombe is going to undergo a six-hour operation uh, tomorrow, and we all need to remember her in prayer. Helen, where are you? There she is back there in the back. Raise your hand, Helen. There you go. Also, um, for those of you that are interested in having a Christmas a play this year, you need to see uh, Vonnie Dixon after church. Vonnie, can you raise your hand? There she is. We're trying to determine whether uh, there's enough interest, there's enough uh, young people to have a Christmas play this year. And so uh, see her afterwards if you want to um, be involved in that. One other thing is we have a sign-up sheet in the library for Israel My Glory. Israel My Glory is a wonderful magazine, and if you sign up, you can get a free year subscription. I'm not trying to promote this, and uh, there's nothing for me in it other than for you to get more good, sound Bible teaching. This is a wonderful issue. In fact, every one of them is. Every issue has a double fold-out inside like this, and you can... Take, just pull this out of the magazine and put it up on your wall if you want to. Uh, this one has, what did the Bible say about? And then in each one of these little squares, it has um, the Bible, creation, man's nature, eternal rewards, eternal punishment, Jesus, uh, Satan, God's work, God's love, God's wrath, marriage, justice, environment, and so forth. All right here. So if you're looking for something, there it is. Another thing that I like about the Israel My Glory is most articles are only one page long. And there's a lot of research you can do in here. And it's just a, a, a magazine that I hope you'll uh, take advantage of. I'm going to leave that out in the library till next Sunday. If you don't put your name and address on there as to get this free year subscription then I'm going to send it in, and I don't know when, you, when you'll have another chance to do this. So it's in the library. You can put that on your list. Okay, let's prepare ourselves this morning in our usual fashion. We have a few moments of silent prayer. During that time, it gives us the opportunity to name privately to God the Father any unconfessed sins, which ensures the filling of the Holy Spirit. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we're so thankful for your word. Without it, we would just be in a fog and confused. But because of your word and the Holy Spirit, we are able to understand the entire realm of doctrine. Our feet can be on that solid rock, but we have to know what is in it. We have to learn it and apply it. So we pray that you will help us to focus 
so that what we learn today can be put into long-term memory and used. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. If you'll turn in your Bibles to Joshua chapter 9. Joshua chapter 9. I have to admit I'm surprised. I'm, nearly every time I go to a book I haven't taught, I'm surprised at what all is there. I hope that... Is that me? <laughs> it was the other part of me. <laughs> We're going to be dealing with guilt today. <laughs> okay, Joshua chapter 9. Uh, when I taught First Kings, I had a burning desire to go there because the Lord was leading me there. That is the next pasture the sheep needed to feed in. And when I went there, it was... Un unbelievable what all I found. And now it's the same thing with Joshua. And here we are in Joshua chapter 9. And it seems something that's somewhat, I don't know, innocuous, not such a big deal. We're talking about the Gibeonites. Who are the Gibeonites? And who cares? Well, it all depends on your volition. There is much to learn from chapter 9 and the Gibeonites. So I hope you stay plugged in. I'll do a very quick review to bring us up to speed so that we can understand the principles that we're going to go over today that are as pertinent and as applicable as right now. In Joshua chapter 9, we find that there is a con job that is done on Israel, and not only on Israel as a whole, but also on Joshua and the leaders. We have these uh, people who were living in an area that God had assigned for destruction. The central part of Canaan is where Gibeah was located. And they had found out what God's instructions to the Jews was, that they were to be annihilated. And so they decided, well, what are we going to do about this? And they decided to use human viewpoint, go to Israel and pretend that they lived outside the central area that was assigned to destruction. And they were going to lie and say that they came from another location further out where Israel was not commanded to annihilate them. They were commanded to make a covenant with them, make a treaty with them. Now, one thing that we see that is in between the lines here is that there were a number of believers because they believed that the things that happened to Israel was brought on by the true God. That not only was He the God of Israel, but he protected them and delivered them in supernatural ways. And they, they believed this. If they didn't believe it, they would have been like the rest of the cities, the rest of the people in Canaan who thought, well, who are, who are these people and who is their God? We don't want to have anything to do with him. We'll crush these people. No, they recognized that the God of Israel 
was who he said he was. Now, what they did was not right. They, they Certainly not right for them to go to the leaders of Israel, lie to them in order to try to save their hides. But you can understand how that would be something that would be a normal thing to do. If you were convinced that some country was coming in and they were invading your land and all the evidence showed that this God was a true God, He was the God, then you would be motivated to not use divine viewpoint. They didn't even have any divine viewpoint outside of understanding that God is who He said He was. So they go in and they do a con job to Israel. Now that's the background. Where we go from here is on Israel and upon Joshua's side. What were they to do? They ran two tests that we all hopefully do when we're trying to make a decision. The first one is the logical test. They listened very carefully to what the Gibeonites were telling them. Even though it was a lie, they were listening very carefully. And they ran it through their logical grid. Does it make sense that they would do this? And they found, yes, it does make sense. It was logical. They didn't know that they were being lied to. But what they were told seemed to be logical. The other kind of test is the empirical test. Now, the empirical test has to do with just ascertaining the facts. Uh, they, go th they did a great job of deceiving Joshua and the Israelites. Remember, they had old worn-out clothes. They had old wineskins. Uh, everything that they had appeared to be as if they came from a long distance. And they told, they told Joshua, we heard of your conquering on the east side of the Jordan of those kings that had gone against you, and we realize that you have the true God. What they didn't mention was they also knew that the cities of Ai and Jericho had been destroyed. Gibeon was only about 10 or 15 miles from Jericho. And so they would have heard very quickly but if they lived where they said they lived in the lie, way outside these boundaries, then they wouldn't have heard that yet because it took time for news to travel then. So they were very clever in their deception. But what we're going to look on and focus on this morning are these two tests because hopefully you, you, you employ these tests all the time. It might be something that you're going to buy. It may be someone that you're interacting with and they're giving you this information and you have to make a decision as to do something and you imply the logical test, does this make sense? And then the empirical test, do all the facts look, look like they are as they should be? This happens all the time when an employer is going to hire someone, they listen to what they say. Why do you want to work for this company? And... What is your background? An employer that is sharp will not only take a resume, but they will follow up on the companies that they've worked for. And if they do that and it all stacks up, it all appears to be legitimate, 
that does not necessarily prove that the people aren't lying to you or that you should go forward in this. So here's the point. These tests, the logical test and the empirical tests, can only expose error, but it cannot prove truth. Get that down. I'm going to say it again because so many times people will employ these two tests and they say, well, that's all I can do. Uh, I'll go forward on this. But those tests are designed to sniff out errors or lies, but they cannot ascertain truth. They can only show if something is wrong, but they can't show undisputedly that it's right. There might be pieces missing that you are not aware of. Now look at verse 14 in your Bible in Joshua chapter 9. After they had listened to all the evidence and they ran the logical test and the empirical test, they decided to act. In verse 14, if you want to put a notation in your Bible, this is what you should not do when you're trying to make a decision. So the men of Israel took some of their provisions and did not ask for the counsel of the Lord. That's where they went wrong. Because, again, don't minimize this principle. When you run decisions through the grid of the logical test and the empirical test, does not mean absolutely that you are to go ahead because there are tremendous amounts of lies and deceptions and, tra and traps out there. So how is one to be able to determine, determine these things? Now, in your verse, it says, and he did not ask for the counsel of the Lord. Underline counsel there. This is the New American Standard Version. If you have a King James Version, it said they did not ask from the mouth of the Lord. Well, the mouth was a literal mouth. It was the high priest. In this, in this case, it was Eleazar. In Numbers chapter 27, verse 21, it says, Moreover, he, Joshua, shall stand before Eleazar the priest who shall inquire for him by the judgment of Urim and the Lord, before the Lord, uh, and, the Lord and his commandment at his commandment, this would be Eleazar's that is getting information from the Lord, they shall go out and at his command they shall come in, both he and the sons of Israel with him, even all the congregation. Now what does all that mean? What it means is Joshua made the mistake. He employed the two tests and then he moved forward without going through the right protocol that they had of that day to get God's word on it. So Eleazar was the high priest. The high priest would wear what is called the breastplate. And the breastplate uh, had all 12 stones, one for each tribe. And we don't know how Urim, actually most of the time when you see the word Urim, Thummim is with it, Urim and Thummim, no one knows particularly how they, uh, how they worked. There's speculation, but the main point is is that they could determine for certain whether yes, do this, or no, don't do it. 
That's the only way it would answer. Yes, do we have the go-ahead? Should we do this? Yes, or should we not? No. He didn't imply that. He left the spiritual dynamic to this issue out. He just used his human viewpoint. It looked good to me. Let's do it. And that's how we're not to do it. However, as I pointed out last time, we don't have Urim and Thummim, do we? We have a high priest, but it's the Lord Jesus Christ. We don't have a physical, a human high priest. So how are we to determine, once we've run these tests, whether we should go forward with something or not? That's what we're concentrating on today. And I hope you stay plugged in because I'm, I'm going to try to go slow, but this can make a huge difference in your future as to the decisions that you make. So how does this work today? We don't have Urim and Thummim. Turn in your Bible to Romans chapter 14. Romans chapter 14. If you don't have your Bibles, I have this. But let me tell everybody something right now. <clears throat> this church is much like a classroom. My job is to prepare the saints for spiritual combat, and we do that through the Word. How successful are you going to be if you go to a school, a junior college, or to college, and you're given a textbook, but you never open it? You don't even bring your textbook to class. Would that be a smart thing to do? It wouldn't. And so it's the same thing here. Now don't turn around and look at your neighbor to see if they have their Bible. Could be that they forgot it. And it's none of your business. And if you want some divine discipline, I'll give you leeway. Let's everybody look and see who's got what. Good. I didn't see any heads turn. I, maybe there was a temptation. Wish I didn't have to go through that, but I usually do. So you can see it up here on the board. This is verse 10. Or what did I say? Where were we going to start? Romans verse uh, chapter 14. There's a problem here, though. I can't look at my notes and have this up at the same time. So I've got to look at something here. Okay. Here we go. Does... Uh, if, if y'all don't need this, let me know and I'll turn it off. Does everybody, is, how can I word this? I don't want to embarrass anybody. Let's see. <laughs> um, well, we'll just go through this, then I'll turn it off, and then I'll do some comment. Uh, verse 10. Or was it verse 14, wasn't it? Was it 14.10? Y'all sure? Okay. I've got to go back. See, there, there are uh, good points to this so everybody can see. But then there's uh, the counter also. Aha. It's 1419. <laughs> I knew it didn't look right. Okay, here we go.
Okay. I guess I better put this up. So then we pursue the things which make for peace and the building up of one another. Do not tear down the work of God for the sake of food. All things indeed are clean, but they are evil for the man who eats and gives offense. Now this probably means nothing to many of you. What we're, what we're going to do is go to a couple of verses that's going to demonstrate how one's conscience and intellect have bearing on the decisions that you make. And in verse 19 when it says, Do not tear down the work of God for the sake of food. All things indeed are clean, but they are evil for the man who eats and gives offense. In other words, there was an issue about eating meat that was dedicated to idols. And there were some people who thought, if I eat meat that's dedicated to an idol, that's wrong and I shouldn't eat. But if he went ahead and went against his conscience and ate anyway, then he was going to, uh, as, as far as, as this goes, says that he eats and gives offense. It'll clear up. Just stick with me. Verse 20, uh, 21. It is good not to eat meat or drink wine or do anything which your brother stumbles. In other words, we're in a moment I might put this on if I if I have time. And it is the law of liberty. As a believer, you're free to do anything that the Bible does not condemn. For instance, uh, if you have a predilection to fornicate and you have a desire to do that, obviously the Bible condemns this. You're not free to do that. But if you have uh, someone in mind that you want to court and this person is a believer, then you can have at it. The Bible doesn't tell us who to court, but in a general fashion we see that you are to only marry a believer. If you're a believer, you must believe, uh, uh, marry a believer. But it doesn't tell us who to marry. Don't you wish it did? There's a lot of thought and a lot of struggling that goes through this process of marrying someone. It's the second most important decision you're ever going to make. So, verse 22. Uh, what you eat, or verse 21 rather, uh, it is good not to eat meat or drink wine or do anything that makes your brother stumble. You see, some people don't understand that we can eat anything we want to. How about that? If you want to have a chocolate cake and a peanut butter sandwich, if you want to mix them together, that's fine. If you want to eat, eat a porcupine, have at it. Uh, I'd be careful, but you can do it. But some people think that there are dietary laws that are still pending upon church-age believers. Or verse 22, The faith which you have... Have as your own conviction before God. Happy is he who does not condemn himself in what he approves. In other words, it is your conscience before God that is important. And if you know of no constriction, if there is no deterrent in the Bible, nothing that says that you shouldn't do this, then you can do it and have a clear conscience about it. Are you with me so far? Okay. 
Verse 23. But he who doubts is condemned if he eats because his eating is not from faith and whatever is not from faith is sin. Now what this means is, let's say that you don't know, and back in the time that this was written, there were people who didn't know that it's okay to eat meat dedicated to idols. Why? Because the idol is nothing. Who cares what it is? But they would think this would be sacrilege. This would be against, this would be unpleasing to God to eat something that is dedicated to an idol. Which, it's not wrong, but they didn't know it wasn't wrong. But if they go ahead and eat anyway, even though it's not wrong, it would be sinful for them to do it because it's not of faith. They're going against their conscience. Do you see what this is saying? But he who doubts is condemned if he eats because his eating is not from faith. He's, he's doing something that he thinks he ought not to do. You can mark this in your Bible. But he who doubts, that would be a baby believer. You see, he doesn't know all the norms and standards. He's kind of confused. He's just kind of uh, in doubt. He's condemned if he eats anyway, if it's not from faith. In other words, if you go against your conscience, it's not of faith. And even if it would be allowed, it's wrong for you to do it because it's against your faith. In other words, against your conscience, it's like, well, I'm going to get by with something. And whatever is not from faith, going against his conscience is sin. Now, I'm going to make a few principles here that I think are very important, so listen carefully. Walking by faith is walking with certainty. Walking by faith is walking with certainty. Actually, we might say it's walking according to doctrine. You have doctrines, you have norms and standards, and when you're walking in doctrine, then it's the same as walking in faith. It is knowing the will of God and walking in it. This doesn't mean that we know the outcome of walking in faith, and it be, may be a bumpy ride. You get what I'm talking about? When we walk in faith, you know certain doctrines, and you, you are grounded in it, no doubt you're walking according to the precepts of doctrine in whatever area it might be in. Walking by faith does not mean that you have certainty as to the outcome of what's going to happen if you walk by faith. Walking by faith does not mean that you're going to have an easy ride, that it's going to be an easy road. It might be a very bumpy road. So the question arises... Why should we walk that way? Because sometimes walking according to faith, walking according to the principles, the doctrines that you've learned, is going to cause suffering. And it would be much easier not to walk according to your beliefs, your doctrine, and just go with the flow. So why should we walk according to our faith, according to doctrine? Here's the answer. Because God is on our side and He will deliver you through the hard times. Anybody know a verse for that? Where would, you, where would we go into the Bible to find out for certain 
that we can rely on God when we walk according to faith. Faith isn't a blind faith. Nowhere in Scripture do you see anything about a blind faith. Faith includes intelligence and conscience. We'll get into that in just a minute. But first of all, I want you to understand the Bible documents this. Where? I know some of you know. You might not know the address, but you might as well go there and put a big circle around this, put a star by this verse. 1 Corinthians chapter 10 and verse 13. You need to be familiar with this verse. You need to commit it to memory. You need this verse. First Corinthians ten thirteen. No temptation. You can just strike out temptation. It's not talking about temptation. The Greek word here is periosmos, P-E-R-A-S-M-O-S. And in context here, it's talking about testing. We all get testings, don't we? No testing has overtaken you, but such as is common to man. You know what this is talking about? You're going to get into testing. The Lord's going to allow adversity to come into your life. And you're going to say, woe is me. Nobody ever suffered the way I suffered. Nobody ever had to go through this before. Oh, no. Millions of people are going through the same test. It's common demand. It's not all that unusual. And the next part I want you to underline. And God is faithful. Put a big highlight on that one. God is faithful. who will not allow you to be tested beyond what you are able, that would be what you are able to bear, but with the temptation, with the testing. See, he's not going to remove the testing. The testing is there for your good. You learn doctrine. You build some spiritual muscles, and the testing enables you to use these spiritual muscles you've developed. But with the testing, we'll provide the way of escape also that you may be able to endure it. Isn't that worth remembering? That is a solemn promise. There I say it's an oath by God. Now let me hasten to say this. This applies to people who are filled with the Holy Spirit, those who are in status quo spirituality. If you are in carnality, if you have unconfessed sin in your life, this verse does not apply. What, apply, what applies is divine discipline. What you can expect is not for you to be able to endure it. You know what divine discipline is designed to be? Something you cannot endure. You see, if you are in error, if you sin, and you have what we call rebounded, you have acknowledged your sin before God, then you are humble. And what does God give to the humble? Grace, right? He gives grace to the humble. 
And therefore, you're going to be able to apply this 1 Corinthians 10.13 to your circumstances. But if you are in carnality, if you have sinned against God and you arrogantly choose not to be humble and acknowledge that before God, what does God do to the arrogant? Well, the Bible says in James that he resists the arrogant. But the, the word there means he makes war against the arrogant. So if you're arrogant, if you have not acknowledged your sin to, to God, then you are in carnality. And this verse does not apply. You got that? Did y'all put a big star there? How often do you need to rely on this verse? Hmm? The last time you were biting your fingernails down to the second knuckle because you were full of foreboding and worry, wouldn't this be a good promise to kind of calm you down a bit? Okay, so here's the issue. We walk by faith, and it's talking about certainty because we know we have God's promise in writing that He will see us through it. But how about walking outside of faith? Walking outside of faith is walking in doubt. You ever been there? Many times it's not knowing the will of God and doing something that goes against your conscience. This is twofold. Unfortunately, most believers don't have the, what we would call Bible doctrine circulating in their stream of consciousness. They don't really know what the norms and standards of God happens to be in any given set of circumstances. And they're just guessing. They're just trying to, what we might say, fly by the seat of their pants. So not knowing something, uh, they will, and they go ahead and do it against their conscience, is what Joshua did. We're not to do that. Oh, I shouldn't say Joshua because Joshua really applies to the other part of this. The other part of not walking in faith or walking in doubt is to know what the will of God is and go against it anyway. Ever done that? I don't want to know. I already know. You've done it and I've done it. Classic example is someone uh, gets attracted to, let, let's say you're a guy and there's this lovely dish that walks by, you're going to school and your heart flutters and the next thing you know you ask her out and to your great surprise she says yes and you get to form a relationship but you forget to ask her if she's a believer. By the way, what should you do if you're on a date or you're in any kind of start-up relationship with someone and they're not a believer? What should you do? <laughs> How about giving them the gospel? Anyway, if you give them the gospel and they're a believer, they believe it, then you can pursue it. If they don't, what must you do? Drop it like a hot rock. But let's say you don't do that. Let's say that you're a believer and you know that you are not to be unequally yoked with an unbeliever. But she's so pretty. She's so nice. And she likes me. See, you can rationalize these things away. This is just an example of someone who can walk outside of faith. You can make a decision because you don't have the norms and standards, so you go, but you still go against your conscience, which what we might say is your better judgment. By the way, 
Why would anyone ever go against their better judgment? You ever done that? I don't answer. I, again, I know. I've said it myself. When you say, well, I'll do it, but it's going against my better judgment, what you're saying is, I know it's wrong, but I'm emotionally involved in this, so yes, let's do it. Now, I think in Joshua's case, it might have been just laziness. He had this decision to make. He ran it through the test, but he didn't go through the right protocol. He left God out of it, and he's, there. he's going to suffer the consequences. But it's a great learning example for us. So if you're walking in doubt, whether it's not knowing the will of God and you're confused, or whether you know the will of God and you're just doing your own will anyway, then you get in trouble if you are not in agreement with your conscience and you go ahead anyway. What I'm telling you, if it goes against your conscience, don't. Do it. Quit all the rationalizing and don't do it. Faith is not blind. There's no such thing in Scripture as blind faith. Faith certainly depends on evidence, both logical and empirical. Faith is an issue of the intellect, but it's also an issue of conscience. Let's take a look at the relationship between the intellect and the conscience. Turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 8. And verse 4. 1 Corinthians chapter 8 and verse 4. We're going to go back to this eating again. Eating is a big deal, isn't it? Can you imagine if... If God didn't make our bodies where we had to eat, can you imagine how that would change the whole course of everything on earth? I think there'd be a lot less workers out there, don't you? Eating is a great thing. I don't know about you, but I love eating. I'm glad God gave us taste buds. Just think if he didn't give us taste buds, and everything we ate tasted like boiled okra. <laughs> We, had, we wouldn't have to worry about dieting, would we? Huh? But it's a two-edged sword. We have great taste buds. I mean, it's enjoyable to eat. And we're not under the Mosaic Law, but under the Mosaic Law, God said, don't eat these things, period. Don't do it. But now we're not in the Mosaic Law under it. We're in the church age, and we can eat anything we want to. And that's great until... You start fighting the battle of the bull. And then you have to stay away from the all-you-can-eat places, and that's hard to do. Well, I digress. Verse 4. Therefore, concerning the eating of things sacrificed to idol, we know that there is no such thing as an idol in the world, and there, there is no God but one. Verse 5 seems to contradict that, but it really doesn't. For even if there... Even if there are so-called gods, whether in heaven or earth, as indeed there are many gods and many lords. He's saying that there, in verse 4, that there is no such thing as an idol in the world. In other words, he's saying, what he's saying in that verse is there is only one God, the true God. Now, there's a lot of imitations. And when you go to verse 5, he's talking about 
the, the imitations, the, first, uh, the false gods. For even if there are, notice he says, so-called gods. There are a lot of imitations, but there's only one true God. That's the point. And there are many gods and many lords. You see, at the time this was written, Caesar was considered a god. And his administrators were considered lords, that they were superior. So he says in verse 6, Yet for us there is but one God, the Father, from whom are all things, and we exist from him, and one Lord, Jesus Christ, by whom are all things, and we exist through him. Now how long could we go on that verse if we wanted to exegete that and take it apart? But we won't. That's not our subject matter today. However, not all men have this knowledge. Ah, now we're getting to the intellect part. But some, being accustomed to the idol until now, eat food as if it were sacrificed to an idol, and their conscience, being weak, is defiled. In other words, there were people, there were believers that didn't have the whole realm of doctrine. They didn't understand that Jesus Christ spoke the universe into being. It was created by Him and for Him. And that eating food that is sacrificed to idols doesn't mean anything. Why? Well, let me explain. Maybe this will help. In the time that this was written, you would go into Corinth, was a pagan city, and it's not that they didn't have religion. They had religion coming out their ears. It's not that they didn't have a temple. They had a temple. But at the temple, they would make sacrifices to false gods, and that was the best meat in town. I mean, it had to be the best meat. And the marketplace there at the temple is where you could get the best meat. Outside of that, it might be kind of rancid and putrid and so forth. So that you would naturally want to go and get the freshest and the best meat. But this, is, this was sacrificed to an idol. And once the person became a believer, they thought, I shouldn't eat this because it would be being disloyal to God. Well, what does God say? It's nothing. You can eat it. Because it, it represents nothing. It's a false God. But they didn't have that information in their soul. That's where it says, and their conscience being weak is defiled. If they said, well, I could go over here, cross the street, down the road a little bit here, and get some meat that wasn't sacrificed to idol, but it won't be the best kind. And I love my T-bone steaks. And boy, they're hanging up there. They look so great. And they I'm going to do it. I'm going to go ahead and get this steak. And they do it. What have they done? According to this verse, they have defiled their conscience. They've gone against their conscience. Was it wrong to do that? No. But was it wrong for them to do it in the way they did? Yes, because they went against their conscience. There was no law against it. They could do it. But when you go against their, your conscience then it's a sin, even if what you do is not wrong. Remember what it said? Anything that is not of faith is what? A sin. It's as if, well, I'll get by with it anyway. Uh, God will just wink at this or else I'm just going to take a risk anyway. Verse 8. But food will not commend us, uh, us to God. We are neither the worse if we do not eat, nor the better if we do eat. In other words, you can eat anything. But this person in their own mind has conjured up this idea that it's wrong to eat meat that was sacrificed to idol. If he goes ahead and does it anyway, then it's a sin. Do you see how the intellect here is 
is working with the conscience. Do you see that in this verse? The intellect is the norms and standards. And even though this person doesn't have the right norms and standards, his intellect is working with his conscience. Verse 9. But take care that this liberty of yours does not somehow become a stumbling block to the weak. In other words, in, this, in a, a similar scenario, let's say you're a believer. And you know the norms and standards. You know you can go to that pagan temple with all that meat there and you can take a wheelbarrow full of meat home and have a big barbecue and put all the trimmings out and eat it without even the slightest bit of guilt. See, uh, you're able to do that except if there is another believer who sees you doing this and their norms and standards aren't up to par with what the Bible says, then the law of love and the law of expediency overrules your freedom because it would make that brother stumble. And you have to curtail that. That's what is is saying there. It becomes a stumbling block to the weak. I'll give you an example. When I do weddings, usually there's a reception afterwards and many times there's champagne and there's beer and there's wine. And I'm thirsty after I do a wedding. And I go through the line and I see all these things and I'm thirsty. Do I have the right to drink alcoholic beverages as a believer? As a pastor? Right. And I know that. But I have to pass it by. Because there might be a weak believer there and they're watching me. Oh, you know, they're like this. Listen to what I say, what I do. And I can go over there and say, Give me a bud. <laughs> I wouldn't say that. But let's say I do. And this person that's right in line beside me, you know, they gasp. I have become a stumbling block because now to this person, the issue is not the truth that I may speak. The only thing that they can see this pastor imbibed. They think it's a sin. Their norms and standards are not correct. But I have to sacrifice something that is right for me to do. Nothing wrong with it under different circumstances. Now, if I was with other people that didn't have their collar buttoned so tight, so we'll just move on. See, I don't know who all's in here. <laughs> you have to be careful at all times. We do have to watch what we say as well as what we do. So, so verse 7 again. Not all men have that knowledge. Knowledge is talking about the intellect. But some being accustomed to the idol until now eat food... It was sacrificed to idol, and their conscience is being weakened and defiled. They would be going against what they said. But food will not commend us before God, neither the worse if we do not eat, or if the better if we do eat. It doesn't make any difference. Verse 9, But take care that this liberty of yours does not somehow become a stumbling block by you just doing it, even though you don't care if it's going to offend someone or not. For if someone sees you who have 
who have knowledge dining in an idol's temple, will not his conscience, if he is weak, be strengthened to eat things sacrificed to idols? See, you can see, if a person sees, let's say, again, I'm at this wedding reception, and I say, give me a bud, and they give me a bud, and, boy, I'm just scarfing it down, and they see that. They think, hmm, well, if he can do it, he's a pastor, I guess I can do it. So they go ahead and they order a bud, but really deep down they think it's wrong. It goes against their conscience. Would it be wrong for them? Yeah, it would be wrong for them. For through your knowledge, he is he who is weak is ruined, the brother for whose sake Christ died. So we have to keep this in mind. Let me give you an example. Let's say that you have your favorite wine. And you leave it in the ice box, in the refrigerator. And that wine bottle might last a month or maybe even longer. Every once in a while at night you want to pour a little glass and... But you have a relative that's come over, coming over that's a believer, and they are a teetotaler. What should you do with the wine? Hmm? Drink it. <laughs> I never know what to expect. <laughs> well, that would be one remedy. <laughs> but for the sake of my illustration... Let's say that you put it away. You hide it. Would that be a right thing or a wrong thing to do? It would be a right thing to do. It wouldn't be hypocritical. You know that you are able to drink that because there is nothing in the Bible, no place does it say it's a sin to drink. And we're talking about alcoholic beverages. It's a sin to get drunk but not to drink. But when you drink, you have to be discerning. And so you hide your bottle of wine so there won't be a, it won't be a stumbling block to your legalistic relative that comes over. I know you don't like to hear this. This is just more rules and things that you have to do, but we're required to do it. And it's illustrating the point, point between intellect and conscience. Verse 12, And so, by sinning against the brother and wounding their conscience... When it is weak, you sin against Christ. This means if you have the law of liberty and you know it's okay to drink and you don't care who's watching and if it offends them, so what? You want to do it anyway. Then you sin, even though normally it would not be a sin. Therefore, if food causes my brother to stumble, I will never eat meat again so that I will not cause my brother to stumble. And then he goes on with some other issues. What I'm trying to point out is the difference between the intellect and the conscience. Both of them work hand in glove in order for you to make the right decisions. Just for your benefit, I'll put up on the screen if you want to make this notation, you're welcome to do it. Here are the four laws that I was talking about that you need to know as a believer if you're going to mature and be able to not be a stumbling block to others. First of all, there's the law of liberty directed towards self. You are permitted the freedom to do your own will if it is not specifically forbidden by the Bible. 
this law is overruled by the other laws at times, the laws that are following. Law of liberty, do anything you want to if it does not contradict or go against what the Bible specifically says. The second law is of love, and that's directed towards other believers. It can override the law of liberty when liberty causes baby believers to not understand their lack of doctrine. This lack of understanding therefore leads the baby astray and even to sin while being confused. So the law of love is directed towards other believers. Just because they're a believer doesn't mean that they have the spiritual maturity that you have. So you have to take that in consideration. If they don't know certain norms and standards and they don't know the liberty that they have, you can't flaunt yours in front of them. The third is the law of expediency, which is essentially the same thing as the law of love, only it's directed towards unbelievers. So we have to be careful. Where there's believers or unbelievers, we can't allow ourselves to have them stumble because of us. And the fourth is the law of supreme sacrifice. This is directed towards God. An example was when Paul says he had the right to marry, but he didn't because it would have severely hindered his ministry. So sometimes you might limit your own liberty, your own freedom, because of it hindering your your you might say testimony or your ministry. Okay. I'm just I don't know where the time goes, it's gone, but I'm I'm going to finish a couple of points here that I think will help pull this together. Conscience of the weak is not defiled with the norms and standards from the intellect in the Word of God. In other words, a weak believer does not defile his conscience because of the norms and standards that are in the Word of God because often they don't have those standards developed yet. And so they can do something And it's not going against their conscience because they don't have the norms and standards set up there yet. The intellect is the source of standards for the conscience. You got that? The intellect is the source of standards for the conscience. In most cases, or in in those uh, standards, if those standards are missing, you should not act. But once those standards are established and the conscience begins to use them, You can act. You can make decisions with certitude, free from guilt. You got that? We're talking about what happened with Joshua. Joshua had to make a decision. He couldn't go to a verse in the Bible that told him what to do. But he didn't use the right protocol. So what is the protocol for us today? We don't have the Urim and Thummim. What we have is the Word of God. And we are to develop those standards in our soul And fine-tune our conscience so that when we go against some norm or standard that is in the Word of God, then there can be a bell that goes off. Don't do it. You might feel like doing it. Here's a quick illustration. Years ago, I had a good friend that was a believer, but his life was in shambles. His countenance was down so far one day. This was at work. I I was the superintendent. He was one of my employees. And I said, what's the matter? You look like something the cat drug in. It looks like you could walk under the door. You're so low. And he just started pouring out 
my life is a mess. My wife disrespects me. My children are uh, all just a mess. And my household is blah, blah, blah. And I, I just gave him a few standards. I said, first of all, I said, you're the head of the house. If things are not correct in your house, you can change them. You can assert your authority in order to change them. You can require that your children respect you. You love your wife as you love yourself, but she is not to disrespect you either. And I started giving him, giving him a few norms and standards, and you should have seen it. It was like a light went off in him. He went down from just like this. He was ecstatic. You know why? Because he knew some norms and standards that were biblically sound that he didn't know before. And so armed with those norms and standards, he could go in lovingly but firmly set his house in order without going against his conscience. But what had to be there first? The intellect, the knowledge, the doctrine had to be there. Let me tell you, if you don't know what I'm talking about, if you don't have certain norms and standards in your soul that were formed from the Word of God, they were so ingrained in your soul, they're in your long-term memory, and then you apply those standards. And it doesn't matter what happens. You never doubt. You're right in accord with your conscience. That is tremendous to have. But the norms and standards have to come first. The knowledge, the intellect has to come first. Then you can act upon them without any guilt. Do you know how many people go through their whole life, they have no norms and standards, they have no doctrine, and so it's just like having on uh, blinders. They're just feeling their way through life, and this feels kind of different, and it's just emotions and they never have the confidence and the certitude that they can press on no matter what because their conscience is in harmony with their norms and their standards and the norms and standards are built on the Word of God. Where are you? Can you do that? Can you do that in the whole realm of doctrine? So the intellect is the source of standards for the conscience. If those standards are missing, you should not act. You got that? Well, we're, we're out of time. I guess I better... There's such a good verse coming up, but we'll get into that next time. I might have given you enough to chew on and maybe even um, confu confused you a bit. I hope not. But this issue with Joshua and Gibeah is huge. Because we all get to these places in trying to make decisions and we go through the empirical test, the logical test, but that is no guarantee. We have to run it through our doctrinal grid. If our doctrinal grid does not condemn it, if we have a free conscience, then we're free to act. The only problem is if you don't have enough norms and standards, you could be getting into a mess. However, you are never to go against your conscience and the norms and standards. And there's so many applications for that. We'll get into that next time. I'd like everyone, please, to bow your heads and close your eyes. We're talking about norms and standards. God has norms and standards also for accepting someone into heaven. And His standards are absolute. They do not bend. 
The fact of the matter is, is that you have to be perfect to get into heaven. None of us are perfect. The good news is that God took care of that situation. When Christ died on the cross, He took care of your sin problem. He rose from the grave and offers eternal life to anyone who will trust Him and Him alone for it. And according to Romans chapter 4, verse 5, when you believe in Jesus Christ, God imputes to you. He gives you His own righteousness. Positionally, you're perfect before God. You are then qualified to go to heaven because of faith in Christ. And you can make that choice to choose to trust in His work on the cross and His offer of the gift of eternal life rather than your own works. When you do that, you're born again. Your ticket to, ticket to heaven is guaranteed and you can do it right now. You don't have to walk an aisle. You don't have to raise your hand. Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you shall be saved. Father, we're thankful for this opportunity to delve into the ninth chapter of Joshua and glean these principles that we all need to be cognizant of. We need to be alert. We can't be sloppy in our spiritual life. We can't afford to. It's easily to be duped. But if we follow the procedure that you have for us here in the church age, then we can be certain that you will take us through any test. 1 Corinthians 10.13 Thank you for that. And we pray this all in Christ's most high and holy name. Amen.